Welcome to The Gaslighting Effect. I'm Angela, writer, teacher, cult survivor. After decades of being silenced, I'm finally finding my voice. Today's topic is verbal abuse. This is by no means an extensive list, but I've gone over 10 different kinds of verbal abuse that I want to cover today. One is countering, two, minimizing, three, excess criticism, four, mocking, five, censoring, six, blaming, seven, name calling, eight, ordering around, nine, threats, and ten, playing the martyr. Now, if you look up lists of verbal abuse tactics online or read books, there's a really good one called The Verbally Abusive Relationship by Patricia Evans, for example. She has withholding in there. Uh, And a lot of people say that withholding is verbal abuse. From my personal experience, I would put it more under the umbrella of emotional abuse. But if we're honest, there's a lot of overlap between verbal and emotional abuse. So I'm going to cover that at a later time, just like I covered the silent treatment last week, well, two weeks ago, and gave it its own time because it was worth it. With everything going on in the world right now, there's a lot of talk about physical violence. These are all ways of being emotionally or verbally violent. I started watching this new show, which isn't really new, it's new to me, called Married at First Sight. I started with season nine. There were four couples. I thought it was pretty cool that they had these experts that were matching people up, but by the end of season nine, I felt differently. I felt like the experts had really failed a number of these couples and had put them in very bad situations. It's obvious that the Matt and Amber pairing was bad in every way, and I've yet to meet anyone who thinks that that was a good idea or that that turned out well. But the pairing between Beth and Jamie is the one that I want to talk about today as an example of what a lot of verbally abusive relationships look like. I'm going to start with countering. Countering is when a couple gets into a fight, and it may look like an innocent fight, but when one person in the couple brings up an issue, the other person will counter with something else to avoid dealing with that issue. So this happened a lot between this couple on this TV show. For an anniversary, the show had actually put together this photo album of the wedding and Beth and Jamie were looking at this photo album and there were these beautiful pictures and Beth was just enamored with what a beautiful bride she was and she was talking about the great the great hair color and how vibrant it was and and how beautiful the pictures were and how beautiful she was which was just a natural reaction for her, 
But Janie took that as, oh, my wife is so materialistic. And he didn't voice that. He just became really sullen and really kind of withdrawn until he blew up. He blew up at her and they showed this argument late at night where he was calling her materialistic. He actually called her a really bad name. And I don't remember if he stormed out at that point, but he may have. But every time she brought up that, why can't I just react to the pictures? Why can't you just be happy? Why can't you just, you know, say, yeah, it's a beautiful picture. He countered with, you're materialistic. That's all you noticed. And he was picking a fight. So that's a good example of countering. Second thing on the list for verbal abuse that I put down for today is minimizing. Now I'm going to talk about my own father here. He grew up in a family where there were lots of children close in age. He was the oldest of nine. And some of his younger siblings, when they were in elementary school, didn't have enough supervision. And there was some experimentation between a small group of them. Some sexual experimentation, which left a mark on one of his younger sisters in a very negative way. To the point that she had to go see a therapist after she was married and had grown up and she had this trauma she had to deal with. So she goes to see the therapist and the therapist tells her she doesn't have to bring this up with her family, that it might not go well. But of course, if she thinks her family will understand and listen to her, then it might not be a bad idea to do. So here's my, my aunt thinking that she has an understanding family that will listen to her. So she writes letters and she calls these siblings that she had this experience with to explain the impact that it had on her. And their response is to tell her that she has to get over it, that it wasn't a big deal, that she needs to forgive them. And they didn't talk to her for a long time. So even though she had a very legitimate pain and trauma to work through, her siblings were essentially verbally abusive when they minimized her trauma and when they minimized her pain and told her to just get over it, told her it was her problem, told her that she needed to move on and forgive them and not talk about it. That would be a form of minimizing. Three, excessive criticism. I'm going to go back to Jamie and Beth. It was very painful to watch this particular couple on Married at First Sight because they started out on what looked like a pretty normal, in, in a pretty normal relationship. I mean, there were some highs and lows and they were both pretty passionate and pretty loud, but both of them seemed to respect each other in the beginning and then it seemed almost like a flip just switched and all the things that Beth had done that didn't seem to bother Jamie at first all of a sudden bothered him 
and every little thing was used as a criticism to tear her down. So her job working for her father, which is a job and which she said she was good at, was turned against her. Like Their very first fight that was really bad was where they were sitting on the couch and he kept criticizing the fact that she worked for her father. Why? Because you couldn't get a job not working for your father. He was very rude about it. And he wouldn't drop it. And it was to the point that it just looked like he was tearing her down to tear her down. And from the point of that fight on, it felt like he had changed towards her because all of their interactions, unless they were lovey-dovey, because he was a Jekyll Hyde. He would be lovey-dovey or he would tear her down. There was no in-between. Textbook verbal abuse. And I was so expecting these experts to call him out. And they never did. Instead, they normalized it. They made it sound like this was just a roller coaster relationship and some couples couples are like this. Yeah, sure. Some couples are like that. They're couples in verbally abusive relationships. It's not healthy. And the fact that they wouldn't call him out, I found really upsetting and problematic. Four, mocking. When I was a child, a teenager... I was forgetful and I would sometimes not turn my lights off after I got to school. I would drive one of the family cars into school and park in the school parking lot and forget to turn the lights off. And then I would go in all day to school and study and take my tests. And then I would come out to the car and lo and behold, because I left the lights on all day, the car wouldn't start. And I would freak out because how was I going to get home? And then I would go to the payphone, which tells you how old I am. We had payphones then. We didn't have cell phones. I would go to the payphone and I would call my parents and my dad would pick up. And I'd be like, Dad, the car won't start. And I was freaking out on him because I was really scared. He just told me to find a jump and he would hang up. So I would distraught, go from person to person and ask if anyone had jumper cables. And could someone help me jumpstart my car? And I always found someone because people understand, for the most part, people are decent. But what always happened every time this story played out was that I would come home, I would be relieved because the crisis was over, and then we would all sit around at dinner, and my dad, in front of everyone, would start fake crying. Dad, the car won't start start and he would mock me and when I would object he'd be like well that's how you look pitiful so that's verbal abuse because you're mocking someone's feelings you're mocking someone's experiences and that's a really obvious story of when someone mocks you but sometimes people are more subtle about it because they'll say something really biting or condescending or, or you're, not, you're not sure if they're serious, and you'll call them out on it, and they'll be like, oh, I was joking, can't you take a joke? Grow a sense of humor. Same thing. It's still verbal abuse. It's mocking. It's using joking as a way to hurt somebody. Five, censoring. 
a really good example of censoring is basically the way I lived with my ex-husband. He actually told me the things I was and was not allowed to talk about. Angela, I don't like it when you talk about politics. He would sit next to me in church and I would raise my hand in Sunday school to say something. And he would turn all red like he was embarrassed. I would say my comment. And then he would be like, I wish you wouldn't do that. I wish you wouldn't speak. I wish, I wish you wouldn't share your opinion in church. It's really embarrassing. It's really embarrassing to me, Angela. And that was really hard because I felt like I wasn't allowed to have a voice or an opinion or a thought about anything that wasn't in agreement with his. And I certainly wasn't allowed to vocalize it around him or it was going to embarrass him. That's also verbal abuse. Because you're seizing power over someone's ability to speak. Six, blaming. Now, for a lot of people, blaming comes naturally. This is, this is another place where my marriage was kind of an example that I could hold up. Everything was my fault. Even things that couldn't possibly be my fault. You know, he at one point lost his security clearance and somehow, for some reason, that was my fault. Even though nobody interviewed me, um, I didn't do anything to disparage his character. I, I mean, aside from existing, there was really literally no way that him losing his clearance could be my fault. Except somehow he found a way to blame me for that. Maybe because I wanted him to see a therapist. That, that is actually what he told me. I made him see a therapist. That made him look bad, so that's why he lost his clearance. No, 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 no. That's not the reason. But even if it was, you can't blame that on somebody else. Number seven, name-calling. We're going to go back to Jamie and Beth on Married at First Sight again. Jamie really, really likes to use the name calling to verbally abuse Beth. He called her a tease, materialistic, a drama queen, princess, spoiled, a bitch. He disparaged her character, basically assassinating it whenever he got critical of her. And at one point he even called her the C word. Now, while those other labels that I threw out aren't as bad as the C word, they still hurt. I don't think that when you name call someone that it doesn't hurt just because it's a more mild name you're calling them. You know, my ex-husband, he used to call me woman. You know, like, woman, make me a sandwich. I don't know that he ever said, woman, make me a sandwich. But just the fact that he would do that, that he would call me woman... That made me feel like less of a person. And the name calling on the show was so bad. It was so bad. I mean, she, Beth, had a UTI. Anyone who's had a UTI knows they're really painful. 
and Jamie wanted to have more access to her sexually. And to get his way, he would call her a tease and and call her names because how dare she not give him what he wanted in that way when she had a UTI and she was in pain. There is so much wrong with that. That is so textbook abusive. But again, experts didn't call him out. They showed footage of it, but they didn't call him out. And when the experts came over, he would be really sweet to them and really nice and really reasonable, where she would be kind of like prickly and hurt and not nice to the experts. But then when the experts were gone, she was the same, and he was the one who was changed. He could turn it on and off. Very manipulative. Number eight, ordering around. So when we order someone around, we make demands where no is not an option. You can tell when your relationships are not healthy when you politely say no and the person flips out on you. They start screaming or they fly into a rage. That's a sign you should probably get out of whatever relationship you're in. I'm not going to provide example of that because I think it's pretty self-evident. And I think a lot of people have experienced that and know what it's like. Number nine, threats. Let me tell you about the bishop, the Mormon bishop, who threatened me. He actually wasn't a bad guy. I mean, most of my conversations with this bishop were positive. And I don't think that he intended to be hurtful, but it doesn't change that what he did was verbal abuse. When I was losing my faith in Mormonism, I told my husband and I asked him not to tell the bishop and of course my husband refused to keep the secret and said the bishop needed to know and went into the bishop's office and told him and cried to the bishop and made the bishop feel really sorry for him. So then the bishop called me into his office. And in case you haven't gathered it, there were a lot of issues with that marriage aside from the religious elements. It was not a healthy relationship. There were problems with him having to wear the pants to the point that he was willing to demean me in order to be dominant. But all my bishop saw at that point was a man who was crying and broken, um, someone he had never seen cry because his wife didn't believe in what he perceived as the one true church. So by the time I came into the office, this bishop was just feeling so sorry for my ex, and he was not willing to hear me. And I remember sitting in that office and telling him that our marriage wasn't healthy, and is there someone you could refer us to? Some counseling services? someone that could help us get our marriage to a healthier, happier place where we're on equal footing. And what he told me was that if I would just read the Book of Mormon and start believing in the church again, 
all of my problems in my marriage would be solved. They would all just go away because that's where all of them were coming from. I didn't need to see an expert or a therapist. We didn't need to go to couples counseling. We didn't need help. It was all me. I just needed to read my scriptures and believe and pray. And then he took it one step further because this is where the threat came in. He promised me that if I didn't read and pray and get my testimony in the church back of, of Joseph Smith being a prophet and the modern apostles speaking for God, he told me that if I didn't do that, that my children were going to grow up to resent me. He had no right. I have no doubt that he believed that because that's what they teach you in the church. They teach you the outside world is evil and the people in it are righteous and good. They teach you that you have to really bring up your kids to believe in order for them to have a happy life and not be led astray by Satan. So in terms of his worldview, it made absolute sense that he would believe that. But the fact that he would say that to me, that he would actually make that threat as a bishop, as a man who at that time I respected, that really hurt and that beat me down. So that's another example of verbal abuse. Number 10, playing the martyr. I think this one deserves a lot of consideration because I've yet to meet a verbally abusive person or an emotionally abusive person who did not play the martyr or the victim. Uh, my mother always likes to talk about everything that she has done for me. We bought you your viola. We, we sent you to your school of choice. I drove you to lessons every week, Angela. Look at all the things we've done for you. And that's all true. But that doesn't mean that I owe her complete control over my decisions. Because that's not how relationships work. My ex-husband was a martyr because in his own words, he let me work. I, want, I, I wanted to go back to work after my children were born. And my first attempt, the first thing I wanted to do was to work in a bookstore. So I went to Barnes & Noble and I applied. And they asked me when I could work, and my ex-husband, my husband at the time, had told me that he wouldn't allow me to work unless I did it when he was at work and when the kids weren't around. It couldn't interfere with fixing meals. It couldn't interfere with getting the kids on the bus. It couldn't interfere with helping the kids with homework or getting them off the bus or taking them to activities. And he wasn't going to help because it was my idea. So when I finally did find a job, and I was lucky, I found one working on Sundays. He would talk about what a great, wonderful person he was because he let me work. Like That was his way of supporting me and being an amazing husband was the fact that he let me take a job. On the same plane is that he let me go back to school. Now, 
I had to get a full tuition scholarship to do it. Because his first question was, how are you going to pay for it? Because I'm not paying for it. So the only way I could go back to school was if he didn't have to pay for it. So I was lucky because I was able to get a scholarship to go back and get my master's degree. But again, his conditions were, sure, you can go back to school, but only if I don't have to pay for it. And only if you can find a babysitter. And only if you make sure that there's dinner on the table for me each night. So I remember making crockpot meals in the morning and setting them out because I knew that if he got home from work and I wasn't there because I was at school studying and there wasn't something to eat, he was going to be furious. So I was always careful to have the crockpot meals made ahead of time. And in the meantime, to this day, he talks about what a wonderful husband he was because he let me go back to school. He supported me going back to school. In case you haven't figured it out, that is the most messed up version of support ever because it's not support. But that's how he phrases it and that's really how he thinks of it. He is a martyr because he let his wife work and he let his wife go back to school. And when we had arguments where I wanted things that were really typical, normal things, for a person to want. He would make those arguments as unpleasant as possible and then we would revisit it a couple days later and then he might tell me that it was okay that I could do something that I really wanted to do. And from that day forward, it would be, you always have to get your way. That's how he would phrase it. Anytime I got any of my needs met, that was proof that I was controlling and that I always had to get my way. He was a martyr. He put up with his hard to deal with wife who couldn't just be happy, staying home, raising the kids, fixing meals. His overly ambitious wife who had to have her own ideas about politics that he didn't agree with, who had to have her own education that he didn't approve of, who wanted to go back to work. But then, if I really was everything he wanted to be, if I stayed home, if I didn't do my hair, if I got the dinner on the table, if, if I did everything he claimed he wanted, he was still a martyr because then I was a leech because he was paying for everything and he would never, ever let me forget that he was paying for everything. So again, that's verbal abuse, but I think that's also emotional abuse. That's, that's more of an overlap. Just like the threats, my threat example, that was also spiritual abuse. And I think what it's important to recognize is that spiritual and emotional and verbal abuse often overlap. And while my husband never hit me, there were times when he would stand in my space and he would refuse to let me move or he would refuse to let me pass him or I would be walking and he'd be walking behind me and he would want me to walk faster so he would physically push me. 
that's not like hitting your wife. But is it abuse? Is it abuse? I want you to think about it. Think about it. And if you have a thought, send me a message because I would like to hear your thoughts on this. If you enjoyed this episode, consider joining me on the Facebook page called Spotlight on Spiritual Abuse. You can message me there or post. And remember to always trust your instincts. Don't let others tell you how to think.